Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, where we explore a relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature. Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel and Isaac Hill. Episode 79, Ben Levine on Life Force, the Science of the Stress Response System, and the Global Herb Trade. Ben is an herbalist, entrepreneur, and teacher. He's the co-founder of Rasa, an herbal company that sells adaptogenic coffee alternatives. And we had a really good time speaking with him. We got to go really in-depth into the science behind why adaptogens work and how they work. He stole our hearts right from the get-go by talking about his dumpster diving days. And after that, he started working at Celestial Seasonings, where he learned all about the global herb trade. And we talk about how he has applied his passion for food justice, permaculture, regenerative agriculture, in his work with Rasa, especially in regards to the sustainable sourcing of herbs, which is becoming a kind of a big deal. So it's a good episode. I really enjoyed it. Um... And before we get to it, uh, we'd like to say a couple things. First of all, uh, we are extremely busy right now. So uh, we had some problems with, um, you know, we were out of power for four days because of a late snowstorm. That messed up some of our interview plans and all sorts of other stuff. Uh, so we're kind of behind. But um, when we're coming into our the growing season, we're, we're not going to be necessarily doing four episodes a month you know one every week we might scale that back a little bit just to give us some more uh, leeway Um, but we're gonna keep keep uh, putting out content so don't worry (laughs) but also um, I have been studying with Christopher Warnock who appeared on one of the previous episodes I think about a year ago Um, and I've been studying uh, uh, horary astrology with him among other things and um, I'm at the point now where I am about to graduate, but I need to get some more practice. So if you have a question for me, uh, like a yes or no question, a simple question, um, I mean, it can be a very difficult question. In fact, it has to be something that you feel very strongly about. Um, you can send me an email at info at and I will do a free analysis for you because I am really trying to take my skills up to a high level. And it's already been very uh, edifying to do some of these real horries for people. So AC also has some things to say too. Hey, I'll be quick. I just wanted to let you all know that I have a couple of online classes that are free or sliding scale on herbalism coming up so if folks are listening to this live on the release date uh, which is wednesday may 11th i'm having a class tomorrow which is thursday may 12th from two to four online and you can go to my website at travelingherbfarmer.com to learn more and register it is all about springtime herbs and the plants that are coming up right now that are prevalent in the northeast it's called the spirit of spring and it's going to be a nice deep dive into the season and the lymphatic system and liver supporting plants 
and um, it'll just be a sweet time. So please join me if you're free. If you register, you can also get the replay. And then I have another one coming up Saturday, May 21st. It's a herbalism intensive. That's a little bit more like an herbal 101 course. So we'll be going through um, working with harvesting herbs and drying herbs and making medicine out of them and also some mushroom medicine making tips. So please uh, learn more about those on my website, travelingherbfarmer.com, and hope to see you there. And as always, thank you so much to all of our patrons over at patreon.com slash plantcunning who support us with monthly donations. It really just keeps us going and helps so much. So thank you for everybody who is a supporter. And if you would like to become a supporter of the podcast, you can go over to patreon.com slash plantcunning. Thanks, y'all. Enjoy the episode with Ben Levine. It was a lot of fun. Okay, so today on the Plant Cutting Podcast, we have Ben Levine from Raza. He is an herbalist and an entrepreneur, and we're excited to speak with him today. So, Ben, how are you? I'm great. And hi, Isaac and AC. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, yeah it's good I'm to excited. have you. So generally, when we when we do these interviews, the first question is, what brought you to the plant path? So, hmm. Yeah, I, I was really lucky to grow up on five acres in rural Arizona. Uh, the rural Arizona thing maybe is not so lucky, but five acres was awesome. <laughs> uh, it was, we had a little orchard, maybe 10 apple trees, five pear trees, a big veggie garden. And that was a lot of my time as a kid was spent either doing chores outside, but, you know, we had chickens and goats and it was like a little, little homestead. Uh, and so I was, I was doing them as chores, but somehow something about the outside got inside of me. And, and we also go hiking quite a bit. Um, the Chiricahua National Monument was fairly near the house. And, and that was my start. But I, I really was interested in food justice and food systems. And I didn't discover herbalism until my early 20s. Uh, after college, I, I was working on an organic farm in Alaska. And it was just so different than the landscapes I was used to. It's so green and lush and so many wild foods were out there. Like I, I remember the first time we saw nettles uh, and fiddlehead ferns and a lot of mushrooms and, and that kind of excitement about the wild, the, the potency in the wild, that's just a little different than the cultivated crops uh, was what, what snagged me. And then uh, from there, I went to Colorado after, after traveling abroad for a bit and ended up at the Colorado School of Clinical Herbalism and then did some further education at the Maryland University of Integrative Health. Uh, so it's been, yeah, pretty meandering path, but uh, the, the, the early days of feeling connected to nature and then in Alaska being like, what? We can eat things that are just growing out on the hiking trails? Uh, really what, what sunk it in for me. Cool, yeah. And then I, I saw that you, you worked at celestial seasonings basically and that seems to have um impacted your further development do you want to share yeah. a little bit just about that yes absolutely i celestial seasonings i was there for four years and it was really a, a big inflection point for my path in a lot of ways in good ways and bad ways i i moved to boulder colorado 
uh, Arapahoe, Ute, Cheyenne territory. Uh, a little bit after college, a couple of years after college, and was looking for a job. I kind of wanted to farm. Uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Uh, I had a bit of a business background, and I got a job as an assistant purchasing, assi- uh, temporary purchasing assistant at Celestial Seasonings uh, in the herb department. It was two folks that had been there for 40 years and had traveled all over the world doing supply chain explorations. Uh, and it was awesome. And, it, and, and I was starting to develop an interest in herbs, but this happened at the same time in a way that was so synchronous. Like I got to take all these herbs home with me and start playing around with them. Um, and it was also my key into herb school because I convinced celestial seasonings to pay for evening herb school at the Colorado school. Nice. It's the way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And I got to see the herb industry in a way that very few people have the privilege to. Like I was buying 10 million pounds of herbs a year, which is just massive. Yeah. I can't even imagine it. Yeah. yeah, It it was like I was I was buying a million pounds of chamomile a year uh, from Mexico and Egypt and and sometimes Eastern Europe. And in getting to know these plants from the the commerce side as well as in herb school and, and trying them out on my own. And also seeing a lot of, uh, as, as someone who kind of grew up with organic being a really big deal and, and working on a permaculture farm. And, um, I traveled to India before I landed in Colorado and worked on some farms there. Um, seeing the herb industry at that scale and not being in a position to do anything that felt particularly good or useful. Uh, it was just kind of almost status quo in a lot of ways at, at Celestial Seasonings. Uh, like we, we would launch organic products here and there, uh, but it, it wasn't built into the ethos of the company. Uh, and, and that was a big part of my drive to join Rasa. It was like, oh, now I, I have all this experience. I've done a lot of sourcing internationally. I've, I, I understand R&D and quality control and operations. Uh, but now I can be in control instead of this, I think, Haynes Celestial's three and a half billion. Um, so wow. it's just a very different experience than uh, the, the small startup I'm at now. Yeah, for sure. So I have a bunch of questions popping around in my brain, but I did want to go back to the food justice part. And I'm curious, like how that peaked, that interest in food justice um, peaked for you. Yeah, it showed up in a lot of ways. I I was in this really incredible dumpster diving co-op in college, uh, like really nice. organized. It was it was probably thirty of us, and mm-hmm. a couple times a month you would go out with a partner, and we had a little map of all the the good dumpsters around. Mm-hmm. I was living in Tucson at the time. Oh, so like, all right, we're gonna hit Whole Foods, we're yeah. gonna hit Trader Joe's, we're gonna hit Sprouts, and we had this whole this whole map for folks. Nice. And then you drop it off at a, at another person's house who, and again, it would be a pair and they would sort it into, you know, 20 different boxes and then deliver it. So you'd wake up the next morning with a box of food, um, twice a week. You wow. Have a box of food it's like a dumpster CSA. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> that's, <laughs> it was, it was incredible. that's really cool. I love that idea. But just little things like that, just realizing how much waste, uh, I, I saw a number recently, something like 40% of our food is wasted. Uh, yeah. And, and I think the, the righteous anger that comes with those type of statistics and, um, and also, you know, growing up, my dad 
was a um, organic gardener and that was always a big part of our household and just understanding more about that and reading more about what's happening happening when we monoculture and uh i mean there's yeah there's so many things wrong with our system so it, it just kept popping out and <laughs> any way it could yeah so um one really of the cool. uh, yeah that is really really cool I, I i know what you mean like looking like when, when i've found for instance like uh 50 pounds of brie in the dumpster i'm like yes hell yeah but then also like that's just 50 that's 50 pounds of really good food that's just going to go to waste unless some you know somebody you know uses it but the amount of food that's just thrown away ends up in landfills is is ridiculous and the amount of hungry people it just like does not compute yeah (laughs) <laughs> yeah and I'm, I'm happy just on the on the dumpster diving piece uh like boulder for instance like it, there are solutions starting to be put in place where it's not just uh, poor college kids going around but there's a whole system where it's above ground no one's getting arrested um yeah it's, it's all on bikes and and people just pick up volunteers pick up food from different grocery stores and take it to shelters and um and other folks who need the food and and that's beautiful. Like mm. any any amount of uh, underground dumpster diving that I'd want to do is useless in a place like in a place like Boulder. Mm. But that's not always the case. Yeah, 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 for sure. So you you moved on to Rasa um, after celestial seasonings, which is a completely different scenario. And I see all the the bags behind you. Um, and I know Rasa is known for like adaptogens um, and like coffee substitutes and so on. I've been seeing ads on my um, Facebook. <laughs> and so on. Um, but uh, one of the things that I thought would be interesting to talk with you about, because we talked about this a little bit previously via email, um, is the, 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 the connection between vital energy and adaptogens. And that's something that I'm, I'm really interested in. Um, cause like all throughout the world, you know, there are various names for vital energy. And in the West, there are actually uh, dozens of names for vital energy from organ to vital energy to, uh, etheric energy or whatever, but you know, there's chi, there's prana. Um, but it, it's like, it's, it, it's not allowed in the Western, uh, worldview, but it's, it's recognized all over the world. It's, it's a real phenomenon. It might not be as easily uh, measurable by science, but it, it is real. Um, And the idea that plants can help you cultivate that is, is kind of appealing. Um, So what, what's, what's your opinion on, on, you know, vital energy and, and adaptogens? Well, I think you're, you're exactly right. There's this force that I think every, pretty much every culture in the world is recognized in some form or another, but we can't measure it in the West. And so it often gets pushed under the rug or not recognized or it's, it's not real. Uh, but the fascinating thing for me is that you, you see this tie across cultures, as you said, chi, prana, um, the Greek called it pneuma, the true energy that flows from the heart. Uh, and, and all these systems also had language around what happens when that chi or vitality gets compromised um, and, and they know how it gets compromised if it's acute shock uh, intense emotions chronic 
overstimulation, whether it's physical, mental work, uh, and, and they have language around what that manifestation looks like. You know, it's low energy, it's depression, it's lack of mental clarity. Uh, it affects systems like immune function. Uh, and, and that almost perfectly describes what we talk about so often today when we talk about burnout, chronic fatigue. Uh, and so they map really well on top of each other. But these traditions had herbs that they used to help nurture and support this vitality, uh, whether it's the chi tonics in traditional Chinese medicine or the Rasayanas in Ayurveda in India. Uh, there were there were herbs that helped kind of restore vitality. And, and what gets even crazier for me is that a lot of these herbs across cultures have shared chemistry. Uh, so it's not just these, these cultures in isolation saying, ah, like this herb seems to help for vitality. There's a certain way these herbs help with vitality mm -hmm. that, that they were able to recognize. Uh, and you look at some of the chi tonics that are, that are now considered adaptogens. Adaptogens is a, a modern word. Uh, and, and in China, and you look at some of the Rasayanas and Ayurveda, and you're like, wow, they share triterpenoid saponins, uh, one of the main uh, compounds that's fairly common across the group of adaptogenic herbs. And these, these compounds do a lot of things to help restore our vitality, and they often work through the stress response. Uh, they look almost identical to cortisol. Uh, which, and, and they, it seems, you know, looking at some research on ginseng, uh, on ginsenocides, which are also triterpenoids happenins, it seems like they work as partial agonists. So they bind like cortisol, but not as strongly. And, and that explains this bi-directional effect where if you have a ton of cortisol coursing through your bloodstream, like many of us do with chronic, chronically elevated stress, uh, the adaptions can lower cortisol. And we see, you know, research now coming out with that, like ashwagandha lowers cortisol significantly. Uh, and on the flip side, if you have no cortisol, you've entered that exhaustive total burnt out. Like I, I, I now have a cortisol equivalent of insulin resistance and I, you know, my cortisol is plummeted. Uh, adaptogens can come in with these triterpenoids happenings and give you a little bit of a boost and plug into those receptors uh, in a way that can help you start to build better habits back in. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's so you were saying that uh, different herbs from different cultures contain, contain the same constituents? Yeah, triterpenoid, though there's a couple of constituents that are common across a lot of these adaptogenic tonic herbs. Uh, triterpenoid saponins is, is one of the main ones. Uh, and the one that looks like cortisol, uh, ginsenocides and ginseng mm. are triterpenoids happen in some of the eleutherocides and eleuthero, some of the tangshenocides and codonopsis, uh, some of the japenocides and jagulan or gynostema. All of these are triterpenoid saponins. Uh, and so you see, you see this cultural understanding of, ah, these herbs are good for building back vitality. And then you see it on the chemical side as well, which just blows my mind that you can tie these things together. Uh, and it's, it's not always the case, uh, but the, the, this class of compounds is found in a remarkable amount of the adaptogens. Cool. So um, 
we, I, I guess adaptogens is kind of a big category and is a little still vague. Um, and so you, you've named several uh, herbs that, you know, I'm familiar with and I, you know, are considered adaptogens, but there's also herbs like, um, like reishi or tulsi do, do that are considered adaptogens. Do those have similar compounds too? Or like, how, how do you, and how do you define an adaptogen? Yeah, that's good. That's a really good question. Uh, I'll start with reishi. Uh, the kind of that shiny shellac on the top of reishi, mm -hmm. those are terpenes and mm -hmm. there are triterpenoid saponins in there. And that's what gives reishi its adaptogenic properties. Uh, it has a lot of those immunomodulating, uh, beta glucans common across most mushroom medicinal mushrooms. Um, and those aren't giving the adaptogenic properties. It's why many mushrooms like chaga not an adaptogen, awesome, awesome mushroom, but not an adaptogen, but reishi is an adaptogen because it has those triterpenoid saponins in the, in the hard top. Uh, yeah. And, and, and the, the, you bring up a really good point. Adaptogen, uh, we're afraid, you know, it, it could easily become just another word for superfood, meaning absolutely nothing. Uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like it's, it's right. in very real danger of that you know you see a lot of marketers calling anything and everything adaptogenic uh it's clearly a buzzword right now it's it's becoming more and more popular and like there is no standardized definition that's enforced um there is a there's a standard definition that the folks who do adaptogenic research follow um, it's, it, it started as the three ins. Uh, the herb has to be non-toxic at normal doses, normalizing in its effect, not, not one directional. It has to bring things back into balance and non-specific. So it's not building resistance to one very specific type of influence or stressor. It's more mm -hmm. of a general resilience. Uh, and then more recently in the last decade or so, a fourth in has been added uh, or a fourth part of the definition, it has to work through the stress response system, the HPA axis or the SAS, the sympathoadrenal system. Um, so it has to work through the neuroendocrine system. So you can, you can look at a, at a mushroom like chaga, for instance, and say, ah, like chaga is amazing. It's non-toxic. It's normalizing for things like the immune system, but it doesn't work through the neuroendocrine system in the stress response in a way that adaptogens do. Yeah. Cause I, I guess like nettle also could be, it's non-toxic, non-toxic, it's normalizing, you know, yeah. but it's stuff doesn't work through the yeah. neuroendocrine system. Do you think you could talk a little bit about the neuroendocrine system and like what, yeah. it, what, what it is? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So our, our stress response has two main pathways. One is more hormone based uh, in the endocrine system. And one is more nervous system based. Uh, and when you, combine them, it becomes the neuroendocrine system. Uh, but on the, on the hormone side, you have the HPA axis, which is, uh, you know, your, your brain, like there's something stressful out there and, and you start sending these hormone signals, uh, from the hypothalamus to the pituitary, to the adrenals, to the adrenal cortex, which releases cortisol. Uh, and this is one of the I mean, you're, you're also releasing other things as well, but cortisol is kind of the main thing that the um, adrenal cortex is releasing. Uh, and it's called the stress hormone 
on the other side, you have the sympathoadrenal system, which is working through the nervous system instead of the hormone cascade. Uh, and you're telling your adrenal medulla to release compounds, including adrenaline. Uh, and so you have adrenaline and cortisol. Adrenaline is much more fast acting. Uh, it's also quicker to clear the body, uh, but it gives you that first kind of umph, uh, like we're, we're getting ready to fight or flee. Uh, and then cortisol comes in after that and provides a lot of the sustained elevated energy. Um, there's a lot of, a lot of things going on, like, uh, sugar is becoming more available in, in the bloodstream. So you're able to mobilize energy, get glucose to your muscles. Uh, and the stress response is amazing. I mean, it's something we've evolutionarily had for forever. What we've never really had is chronic stress. Uh, you think of, uh, I don't know if you have deer in central New York, but we have a lot of deer in Colorado. Oh, yeah. yeah, we got deer. deer. Uh, okay. <laughs> so like just watching them, sometimes you start to understand how the nervous system should work. You, you know, they, they will freak out. And then a minute later, it's like nothing ever happened. Like they're just yeah. peacefully munching grass, forgot about everything. Uh, and, and that's how like our system should be working. We see a, a mountain lion. We're like, okay, like we're, we're fighting, we're fleeing. Uh, but then it's over and we go back to the fire. We go back to rest and digest or feed and breed or whatever you want to call the opposite yeah. of fight or flight. Uh, but today we often have this just constant, you know, whether it's really stressful work and emails or it's just our general environment, traffic, uh, a lot of uh, just basic needs that are expanding in a way that that makes us chronically anxious and chronically stressed uh, and the cortisol that's released from our stress response just keeps getting released and what is initially awesome like we couldn't run two miles without cortisol because our knees would be killing us from all the inflammation uh, and and cortisol also wakes us up in the morning the part of the um, the circadian rhythm is, you know, cortisol waking us up in the morning, but as soon as you get out of this sort of rhythm, rhythmic resetting pattern that we should have a stress and it becomes chronic, you have ele chronically elevated cortisol, uh, which then I, I like to think of it like a, like a highway. Um, sometimes ambulance or the police car, like they are coming down the highway, everyone pulls over, they pass, you get back on the highway the healthcare worker goes to the hospital, the teacher goes to the school, the construction guys are working on the infrastructure, uh, but chronic stress looks like just a rows and rows of ambulances and everyone else is just stalled on the side and, and our immunity starts suffering, our libido suffers, our mood suffers, our sleep suffers. Uh, and that's, that's kind of the state of chronic stress that we're in today, many of us. Yeah, I love that whole visual and how you explained all of that. So thank you for, for sharing. So what do we do with this chronic stress? Like how, how do we deal in a modern society, you know, with these elevated cortisone levels and these roads full of ambulances in our body? What, what do we, what do we do with all this? Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's such a present question and, and there's so many different ways to answer it. 
and and so I'll answer it from the the herbal way that that I'm working in. Uh, I, I think it one part of the question that I always ask is is what's contributing to the stress, and when you look at um, like I, I know there are many coffee drinkers out there. Most of most of America's coffee drinkers, but um, so I'm not going to bash on coffee too hard. But uh, the it could be said that coffee doesn't help stress. Uh, there's there's some interesting research. If you're not habituated to coffee and you have a cup of coffee, it triggers your stress response like crazy. Uh, your cortisol goes through the roof. And the idea was that once you're habituated to coffee, that no longer happens uh, because now coffee has replaced your morning cortisol bump in a way. And you're, you're just drinking coffee to get back to your normal baseline. Uh, but it seems that it still is elevating cortisol, not quite as much as when you're having your first cup, but every morning you're, you're giving yourself a little bit of that stress response. Uh, and, and so that's one thing we've been thinking a lot about, like, ah, our culture is our baseline consciousness as a culture is a drink that helps put us in a state of stress. And how has that impacted our culture as a whole? Um, and that's, that was a big part of the idea behind Rasa is like, let's offer plants that help regulate stress, put a, a ceiling on the amount of stress we're feeling, and also try and just plug and play with this ritual that 90% of Americans do every morning. Mm, uh, it's, yeah. it's an easy way to build a, build a ritual, build a habit. Cause you already have one. Uh, and I've tried to take capsules and tinctures and, and sometimes I'm really successful. And sometimes I just like, how do I remember to take, you know, my magnesium every day, <laughs> still working on that one. Uh, but when you plug it into a ritual, like coffee, it's, it's much easier. So what is it about coffee that triggers the cortisol response? And is it the same? Like, is it caffeine? Does it happen with tea too? Like, uh, you know, camellia tea. tea. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a combination of things and it's, kind of crazy we don't fully know how coffee works like we, we've been drinking coffee as a species for a long time but there are so many compounds in coffee and we know the basics we know how adenosine you know how it, it's a uh, it blocks adenosine which is our kind of down regulating compound um, as we as we go through our day we're using atp to make energy adenosine triphosphate adenosine is a is a almost a waste product that builds up in our system and says like, Hey, we're tired. And when adenosine reaches a certain level, we go to sleep. Uh, and coffee, caffeine looks almost identical to adenosine. Um, but instead of, instead of a partial agonist, like we were talking about with adaptogens, it's a antagonist, which means it kind of blocks that receptor like a bodyguard and the adenosine can't bind to the adenosine receptors and our body thinks we're not tired. Uh, but, but that's not why we're getting the stress response. Uh, one of the, one of the reasons is coffee is a pretty big central nervous system stimulant. Uh, there's also some thought around, you know, the question of like, why do we get so euphoric when we drink a cup of coffee? Like it can't purely be blocking adenosine cause that's not adding anything. It's just making us not feel tired. And there are dopamine receptors next to adenosine receptors, certain type of dopamine receptor that appears to also be getting um, triggered with the caffeine and making us feel good. 
and and that might be part of it as well. But but mm. mostly the central nervous system stimulation, I guess. Mm. I see. Yeah. So I I mean I, I don't drink coffee. I I can't. It like hurts my stomach. <laughs> so I haven't been drinking it for a number of years. Um, but the, I do like the mushroom powder type thing and uh, as a as a as a plug and play because yeah everyone has well most people in the United States have that kind of a ritual so it is good to use established rituals mm-hmm. um, but it also makes me think you know like every culture kind of has their drug you know yeah like in the Middle Ages all, Europe was just drunk all the time <laughs> yep <laughs> well because water supply wasn't well like, yeah I mean there's re- great, yeah, reasons yeah. but. <laughs> right we gotta have something yeah we but, have, we have it's sugar true coffee. yeah like what 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 drugs do our cultures condone and we have you know we have a shrine to coffee in every office and yeah and we really hate on other plants but like yeah we have our we have our our plants and uh it, it is really interesting like it am i just really stupid to go up against something so embedded in our culture Uh, No, I love it. (laughs) I freaking love it because it's like, you know, it's a really smart move from an herbalist perspective who wants to change culture, change, you know, the world to like go at the um, at, at coffee or like at the addictive, you know, the major addiction that this country has that's not serving us. Um and replacing it with something that does serve us. Cause it's like anyone who's ever tried to get off of an addiction, it's not easy to just go cold Turkey, you know, to just quit. But if you have something that you can replace it with, like you were saying the morning ritual of having that first sip of coffee and like making your coffee, you know, if you can replace that with something similar, but more nourishing, it makes a lot of sense. So I think that it's like a noble cause and it's a really good idea <laughs> Um, cause like not only is like the coffee industry, you know, not promoting our individual health, but where are we getting the coffee from? And like, like Maxwell house and like, yeah. how is it contributing to climate change and to, you know, problems, you know, in, in people's lives across the world, you know, it's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Coffee is um, actually sixth on the list. I mean, beef number one. Mm-hmm. by a large degree of contributing to climate change uh, like the foods we eat and coffee is number six wow. um, so it's not i mean it's a, a lot of transportation uh it's often mm-hmm. sun-grown and monocropped mm-hmm. and there's a lot of beautiful people doing beautiful work you know intercropping shade grown uh, but the the majority of the coffee out there is yeah exactly it's, it's not yeah. uh, in a great way mm-hmm. and, I, and it, it's so fascinating for me have either of you read dale pendell's books yeah uh, yeah. i yeah if, if anyone listening dale pendell is one of the coolest plant poets the late dale pendell mm-hmm. uh, but he writes a lot about plants and culture and how just like you were saying isaac how plants weave themselves into culture in such a strong way and and when you really step back and look at our relationship with coffee it's it's really interesting like you see a lot of t-shirts and mugs that say you know coffee is my personality or don't mm-hmm. talk to me until i have two cups of coffee yeah and and if we subbed in coffee for anything else you know if we were like 
vodka is my personality. Don't talk to me till I've had two glasses of wine. Like, wow. you would be like, huh? Like, I don't know if that's healthy relationship. <laughs> that's true. Right. Well, it, it's also interesting on like a, like an, well, so there, there's a, a, a channel I watched on YouTube, uh, Nordic animism. So he's coming, coming at things from an animist perspective. And he was uh, discussing how the ancient uh, Norse people used uh, beer as a, as a ritual of coming together. And as you know, you made offerings with beer to the spirits of the land and so on. And the same kind of thing is happening, was happening in North America with tobacco, for instance, like that would be the, the, the plant that, that, you know, causes some, changes you know in consciousness uh but is like you you share it together you know to to make a to have a peace talk you offer it to the to the spirits of the land or whatever um or whatever the or other you know other plants whatever you're doing uh but then you know our culture you know has <laughs> kind of yep. taken that to a to a, you know terrible like i'm sure tobacco is up there too on on the list of uh, crops that are causing problems. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, it's, it's our, the way our relate our relationship with it, but that's, yeah, that's a really, really beautiful point. And I, I was in Ethiopia for a couple of weeks, maybe eight, eight, nine years ago. And that's where coffee's from. Like that's the, the birthplace of coffee. And like the first thing I noticed, like, wow, there's very little, uh, you can make coffee extremely strong and there's very little of that like bitter acidic. Uh, and it's like, Oh, the terroir, like it, the soil in Ethiopia is not as acidic as it is other places. Coffee has been brought. Oh, no. uh, and then the second thing was like, Oh, there's, there's an entire ceremony yeah. built around coffee mm -hmm. and you're going to sit down for a couple hours and it, it has steps. It has rules. Yeah. It has community. And like, imagine if that was the only way we could get coffee in America, like it would be a really different picture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. And I mean, the same thing with like chocolate and all these other plants, like the, when you take it out of the ceremonial context, um, you know, you desacralize it, you know, mm -hmm. and it becomes something that can be a, a problem. A commodity. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. But to, to go back to replacing, they're using like, you using the already established ritual of coffee, mm. you know, that that track is already in place. That habit is already formed. And a, a mentor of mine once told me that you can't um, break habits. You can't break addictions. You can only trade up. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, that, you know, I think adaptogenic herbs is probably a trade up. I would say. <laughs> yeah. I, I like can. that. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> And yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm aware of how easily adaptogens can also get co-opted by our culture. Right. You know, like it's, yeah. it's not hard to replace your cup of coffee with uh, a shot of really intense ginseng extract and, and not get, you know, maybe there's some harm reduction. Yes. But like, is it, is it good for you? <laughs> I don't know. Mm. And yeah, so that, that's something we talk about it a lot at rasa like how do we like a lot of our like the base adaptogens we use are the more nourishing gentle like codenopsis shatavari maca 
and and then you have the option of going into the more intense like here's a here's a blend that has a nice dose of rhodiola and and eleuthero and schizandra um but but the the challenge is to communicate to people and, and say like oh yeah like you won't feel it like coffee but give it a couple of weeks and then tell us how it is and tell mm-hmm. us how your energy is and tell us how you feel and have have you ever seen um adaptogenic herbs becoming kind of a crutch for people where they work so well that they don't make important lifestyle changes, like maybe quitting that job or getting out of a shitty relationship or something. Yeah, definitely. And and that's, yeah, that's like, it doesn't, adaptions can't replace good relationships and exercise and nutrition and, Mm and all of that and spiritual practice. And, uh, I, I use this, it's a story, uh, Betsy Castillo Miller, I learned from her. Mm-hmm. Um, she was talking about the, and this this is kind of just a animal graphic segment coming up. Just a a, a warning. Um, but okay. a lot of the early research, a lot of research still, unfortunately, is what's called forced swim tests, where they put mice in a bucket of water, and they see how long they swim until they give up and drown. Um, and they will swim longer with adaptogens. Hmm. Hmm. But if you're not building a ladder out of that bucket, like, what are you doing? Mm. Uh, and, and so always asking clients and customers, like, how are you using adaptogens to build a ladder out of that bucket? Because if you're just using them to struggle longer or to, you know, over-optimize longer hmm. uh, or to overstretch yourself longer, like, it's not going to be good for you. Uh, like it, it might be better than other things you could be doing, but yeah, it's not the, it's not the way it's quite the visual. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's why it stuck with me. I, I, I say that all the time to students when I teach and I yeah. mean, it's just like so visceral. Yeah. Um, and, and so like, I'll just say it again. It's like, it, it, it's incredibly messed up that yeah. we use animals in this way. Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Horrible. Mm-hmm. So, so to, to go back to a previous question, um, talking about, you know, adaptogens and uh, like vital energy, when we go back in time to most traditional cultures, you know, that most of the people aren't in fight or flight stress response most of the time, like a lot of people in like the West, the industrialized West are. So what were the, what was the use of the adaptogens at that time? And uh I know that many have associations with spiritual practice. For instance, reishi, you know, is called the spiritual mushroom and, you know, you're only supposed to use it if you're going to, you know, get enlightened or something. <laughs> I mean, it's a reduction, but you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good one. Uh, and, and it's, it's an interesting thing that we do lumping herbs into categories like adaptogens yeah and it's it's awesome that they have shared chemistry and they have you know shared categorization in traditional cultures uh, like chitonics and rasayanas but they also have very unique individual personalities and and i think that plays into a lot of their use you know like take ashwagandha for instance it's a, a rasayana and ayurveda so it is known to help build up vitality when you are weak when you're 
convalescent, like when, when you need some extra support, uh, ashwagandha is great. And it also has a lot of very specific indications, uh, you know, around fertility, um, there's some immune things and, and, and you see this with each herb, like, okay, codonopsis called poor man's ginseng because it's a lot cheaper than ginseng. It has a lot of the same ginsenoside type compounds, uh, but it was often added to soups in the winters because it's a tonic, it's fortifying, it's really helpful for the immune system. Uh, and same with the stragulus. Uh, and so that there's a mix of specific indication, like, ah, I have this problem, I'm going to take this herb. But there's also on the other side, herbs just weaving into daily life in a way that we don't often experience here. Yeah. Uh, you know, Tulsi, I was in India in March and it was really beautiful to see Tulsi everywhere. You know, it's a, it's a, one of the most sacred plants. Yeah. It's a goddess. And yeah. 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 It's the manifestation of a goddess. And, uh, it, it, it was at every house we went to and you're like, ah, there's your Tulsi plant in this beautiful planter, like this, this, mm-hmm just incredible altar of a, of a pot. And then we would go to a farm and be like, ah, there's the farmer's Tulsi in his, in his, um, outside of his house. And we'd go to our, our supplier and they would have a little Tulsi shrine at the entrance to their office. And, um, and you, you know, like how that weaves in and you, you know, like drinking Tulsi every day is, is a beautiful thing. Um, and obviously there's a lot of very specific indications, but, um, it was also a, a drink. It, it, it is also a drink that's yeah. quite popular in India. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I could Shazandra. Yeah, the, there's a indigenous group, the Nanai, in the Far East that would eat Shazandra berries for hunting because it helped give them energy, staved off hunger, uh, reportedly gave night vision, uh, which I haven't tested. But we have to try that out. Yeah. Vision, yeah. <laughs> Noted. Uh, rhodiola was consumed in a bottle of vodka in Siberia all winter to help immunity and energy. A bouquet of rhodiola roots was given at weddings. Wow. Uh, to uh, kind of to you know boost the happiness of the couple and help cool. uh, foster fertility and. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so like the, the the richness of the cultural use is just absolutely mind blowing, and I I only know a small fraction of it, but right. I want to want to understand it more. Well, I I feel like there's also a kind of a big difference um, in terms of the kind of stress that industrialized Western people have, whereas traditional culture, like we we live down the str- the street from some Amish uh, folks, and they I I like you know, I drive them around sometimes and, you know, we, we, we know them. Um, they don't have the kind of flight or flight, you know, stress response, um, that, that chronic stress that most West, like many Westerners have, but they also like, they're working all the time. They have like adrenal fatigue. <laughs> yeah. They're like, they're under physical stress. Yeah. Like when yeah. you're in a more subsistence, uh, lifestyle which most people in the world have like always been 
you know, because they haven't been subsidized by fossil fuels, basically. Um, you're, you know, you're, you're, <laughs> you still face stress. It's just not uh, more, I guess, I, I kind of see that Western one is more cerebral stress or more, uh, it's a, a different kind of stress, I guess. Yeah, that, that's really, that's really interesting. And yeah, I agree. We are, a lot of our stress starts mentally hmm. and manifests very physically, but it were, uh, I'm like, oh, I'm sitting in front of a computer for eight hours. My body's <laughs> like, run, run, run. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to sit here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As, a, as opposed to uh, like, yeah, being really, really active and not feeling. Yeah. As much of that mental pressure, but be like working extremely hard. And, and a lot of these herbs can also help um, ashwagandha, for instance, you know, there's uh, a lot of research around performance and endurance and extending the physicality or ability to be physical. Um, so, it, you know, it, there's some, there's some application there as well. Hmm. Yeah. So um, I guess I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned you were in India recently. Um, what brought you to India this time around? I, yeah, so I, I was in India eight, nine years ago for four months or so working on farms and just kind of backpacking around. And, and this time I went to visit a few suppliers. Uh, we buy quite a few things from India, ashwagandha, shatavari, vanilla, rose petals, rose powder, cardamom, ginger. Yeah. We, <laughs> um, soon to be cloves and black pepper. Um, so we, we buy a lot from India and I have been wanting to go for a while. COVID stopped me uh, for several years, for a couple of years. And, uh, and so I was there primarily to build relationships with our suppliers. I visited a new supplier and also just to have uh, understanding. You don't really know what's going on over there until you visit um, any, any supplier anywhere, uh, getting your eyes on the equipment they're using, the setup they have, meeting farms and farmers and understanding how the farmers are, are, are set up and what they're doing and what they need help with. Um, so I was, yeah, I was, I was there on a, on a fact finding mission and just to, um, just to see like, what, what's the, what's the situation here? Very cool. So, um, that brings up a question about sustainability and, and, and herbs. And as the person who's sourcing the herbs for your company, um, and you actually claim that your herbs are obsessively, is that what you say? Obsessively sustainable. <laughs> <laughs> so what does that mean? What, it, what, how do you, how do you, uh, how do you keep it yeah. sustainable? Yeah, there's, there's two different sides. I'll, I'll talk about one and then I'll talk about the other uh, and, it's, and it's cultivated and wild. Um, so India is a great example of the cultivated. Uh, like I was, I was there to like understand like how are farmers pushing forward things like organic and regenerative and um, now what can we do to continue to move in that direction and support them um, and it was really beautiful to see just the amount of work they're doing on on their land and their soils um, uh, for instance there's this it's called jivamrutha uh, which translates to nectar of life and it's, it's basically a traditional compost tea. Uh, you have 
the, the indigenous cow dung and urine, um, a handful of soil, some lentil flour, and some jaggery, which is unrefined sugar. And you let it ferment. And the microbes from the, the urine and the dung and the soil feed on the jaggery and the lentil. And it just becomes this incredibly microbe-rich solution that they then dilute and spray in their fields. Cool. Um, and and I saw a, like a buttermilk version of this as well. And uh, saw a lot of vermicomposting uh, at, at really large scale. Like this, when I was in India previously, almost a decade ago, I was working on a, on a Masanobu Fukuoku inspired permaculture farm, you know, like no-till, um, a lot of the natural farming methods and was really inspired, but I was like, how, do, how does this scale? This feels like a demo farm. Uh, and so it was cool to see this time, like, okay, this, this supplier has 2000 organic farmers. They average two to four acres and, and, and they're doing a lot of amazing work with green manuring and intercropping and, and rainwater catchment. And how do we like, how do we expand this and, and understanding how, you know, what motivates the farmers to do that, how they're like, for instance, let's say there's one model farmer in a village doing a lot of these practices and other farmers start to see like, wow, like this guy has better soil, better yield, better profit. And then they start to ask him like, Hey, can you show me how you did your rainwater catchment? Can you show me how you intercrop or vermicompost? Um, and, and so that was really awesome to see, um, and, and supporting more and more of the cultivation efforts around the world. Uh, in Jordan, for instance, we buy roasted date seed, the original coffee alternative before coffee was even drank by mm -hmm. humans. Huh. Um, date roasted date seeds have been consumed for a long, long time mm -hmm. in the Middle East. Uh, but we we paid for their first year organic certification, uh, and they're the first organic roasted date seed uh, supplier in the world, uh, which cool. is really awesome to see. And and it was just mostly us saying like we're interested in this and we're willing to show you that we're we're invested in this partnership. Nice. Um, and then on the wild side. It's, it's, uh, it's kind of, it's kind of scary out there in some ways as herbs like adaptogens get more and more popular, it's really easy for them to start leaning into that commodity category. Uh, and when you talk about wild plants, like there's always a finite amount in the ground. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and we've seen this, you know, chaga is, a, it's not an adaptogen, but it's one that we thought about early on, very early on in the company, we were using wild chaga and we start reading, you know, there's a, um, Dale Rogers, Roger. Yeah. I think Dale Rogers, um, on the United plant savers mm -hmm. blog has a whole article about chaga and sustainability issues and how a lot of herbalists on the East coast and West coast are starting to see less and less chaga as it becomes yeah. more and more popular. And, and we switched to cultivated, like we use fruiting body mushrooms for every mushroom we use, except now chaga for the last three years is mycelium just because there is no way we want to be on the wrong side of history with wild chaga. Uh, and, and we see this with other adaptions too. rhodiola, for instance, is now known to be over harvested. Uh, when four years ago, when Rasa started, 
we were buying from China. And I went to China three years ago up into the wild nature preserve many of our herbs are sourced from. And, and I saw Eleuthero, which was really beautiful. I saw some, a lot of other herbs, but I never, never saw rhodiola. Oh yeah. Uh, and, oh. and it's a real problem now. The government's putting quotas on it. There's um, a meeting happening, I think maybe within the next month about adding it to CITES, like the um, more controlled trading of rhodiola. Uh, and, 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 same thing is happening with the Luthro to a lesser degree, but it's, it's coming. And so we're trying to be ahead of the curve and yeah. educate more. And um, we started sourcing from Canada cultivated rhodiola, mm-hmm. which is, which is really nice and slowly working on getting a Luthro potentially fair wild certified, which would bring accountability to harvesting. You, you know, you, you can only harvest this many, plants per square hectare um yeah so th- there's a lot of problems in the herb industry and there's a lot of really amazing people working on them um and ambrecht with the sustainable sustainable herbs program is a big part of that and i'm part of the the working group there which is you know tackling these massive issues of like how do we how do we bring an herbalist mindset to global trade like right. that that's the like every all you know i, I could talk about all these case studies but it all boils down to like as an herbalist i have a very different relationship with the herbs i wildcraft in the mountains at home like it it is a courtship it is a real relationship it is uh, an honoring and how do i translate that to international trade and how do I bring love into the supply chain and mm-hmm. um, and I'm, I'm really honored to be part of the urban industry because that's something well, many folks in the urban industry are talking about that you don't see in many other industries but it's still um, yeah it's still a far cry from from being there yeah you you start out I guess as an herbalist like building these personal relationships with plants and you know, like you said, like honoring them, connecting with them in, in the wild. And you can't really forget that as you, you know, build your business and as you like are a part of the industry. So it doesn't surprise me that herbalists are, you know, talking about that on these in a large scale. Um, and I'm wondering if like with the increased demand for adaptogens, like, is there enough supply? Like, do we just simply not have enough right now? Like, do we need to be like doubling down on like growing, you know, more adaptogens mm-hmm. and do we need to be just like focusing on sourcing the herbs that we definitely can do safely and like leaning on these like more common wilds and easily cultivated herbs and like the rhodiolas and the things that are, you know, rare and, and increasingly rare. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a, a cycle, it seems where you, where you start with wild, it gets really popular. It starts to become a little more scarce. Price starts to go up. Adulteration starts to go up and then cultivation efforts start to happen. And, and that's what we saw with rhodiola, like rhodiola price from China and Russia has probably doubled in the last 
five years um, from just for, from my limited exposure to it. Uh, there's a lot of adulteration in the rhodiola industry because there's, I mean, there's so many rhodiolas. Like we have a we have a rhodiola in the Rockies in Colorado. It doesn't have the medicinal effect, but uh, but you could mix it in with rhodiola rosea if you wanted to, and we and, and that started to, to pop up a lot. And 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 then cultivation efforts are starting, but it's a it's a it's a long process because rhodiola has never really been cultivated before. In the wild, it can take twenty years for a root to mature, and in cultivation, it takes five years before they harvest. And so you have all these farmers like making massive bets, yeah. saying like I'm I'm betting someone will buy my cultivated rhodiola five years from now, mm-hmm. and I've never grown this before. And and the the groups in Canada are doing a really beautiful job of scaling this thing, uh, but still like the volumes aren't massive to the point where everyone can switch. And so uh, that's that's part of our mission is like yeah we could stop buying rhodiola, but we'd actually want to support the cultivation effort and try and get it big enough so the much bigger herb companies can switch over their supply to Canada. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is, it is tricky. I I think when, when an herb gets popular, it's really helpful to look at, okay, where is it coming from? Is it wild? And how is it, how is it protected? And, you know, certifications like fair wild are great, but they're still in their nascency. Mm-hmm. Fair wild is mostly bigger commodity wildcrafted herbs at this point. Um, it's not the little guys or the more niche herbs or the ones that are in more difficult countries like China. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, that's kind of like a, a problem of like scale too. Cause like I can grow, I've been growing rhodiola in the garden and we talked to Rosemary oh, right Gladstar and she's, that's one of the plants that she's really excited about now because she's been growing it and it's been doing really well. Um, but you know, that's good for like me and my group, but like when you're on a, on the scale that you're on and, or on the scale that like, you know, celestial seasonings is on mm-hmm. like yeah. where like that's it, it's really difficult like it's, it's a lot easier you have a lot more maneuverability as like a community herbalist um mm-hmm. but yeah that scaling up is, is so i commend you for, for that for for trying to do that and and mm-hmm. succeeding and there's there's a lot of philosophical uh tension uh, yeah know, in the herb world like what like if if we all Cause at times in my life, I've been like, we should all just be bioregional herbalists. Yeah. Uh, but the, the amount of herbalists in places like Colorado and Portland, like pretty soon, none of the trails, none of the local trails have any plants on them. Right. And it, you know, it's, it's like our, our population no longer supports this type of very, very local herbalism at scale. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, I don't want to totally, be against international trade like herb trade the herb trade has been going on for thousands of years like it yeah. is um in, in good ways and also really colonial ways really bad ways that need to be unworked um but and it's, it's kind of the oldest one of the oldest trades yeah. like the the silk road that was also i mean they you know traded silk but also yeah. all of the the spices and herbs yeah yeah so, <laughs> so, yeah, so, so yeah. I, I always i, I teach a, the three class series at the herb school in Colorado on herbs of commerce. And one of the things I always say at the end is like, oh, okay, now, now you're all over, extremely overwhelmed 
and depressed <laughs> and you don't trust anyone. <laughs> uh, but like, just start with one plant. Like what's, what's an herb, uh, one plant that you don't have a physical relationship with. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you're not growing in your garden. You're not sourcing locally. Like what's, what's an herb you use a lot that you don't have a relationship with and try and learn everything you can about it. Email all the companies that you may buy from and, and try to get as much information from them as possible and do a bunch of research and, uh, and understand like, ah, like, okay, maybe, maybe I want to buy this in a very different way, or maybe I want to not buy it at all. Uh, and maybe I want to grow it like good for you, Isaac. I tried to grow rhodiola in Colorado, but it was not, I've, I've not yet mastered it. Tell him about the tortuga bed. Oh, well, I got the seeds from strictly medicinal. And he, he suggested doing the, these like tortuga bed. It's like a rock bed. Uh-huh. And so I'm growing it in the rock bed basically. And I, I mean, of all the seed, I, I just started one packet. I only have like two seedlings that, I mean, uh, uh, that made it after all of that. So it wasn't a great, you know, but I'm finding with, you know, even with like codenopsis, like I started with one packet, got a couple seedlings and then, from those seedlings and I got yeah. thousands of seeds right. and then, uh, you know, grew it, grew it in, up <laughs> in, a, in a greenhouse. Cause I have, a, I have a packet of Codonopsis. We're just waiting. It's tempting me this spring, um, but I have not yet, uh, but you need a greenhouse, right? No. Codonopsis no. is hardy to zone five at least. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I mean, um, I was growing it down in Pennsylvania and then up here in New York, it's, it's wintered. Uh, at least two winters. So, <laughs> all right, amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I yeah, I think I learned about most of these herbs from Joe Hollis. He's got some really good videos on on uh, on YouTube about yeah cultivating like a lot of those Chinese herbs. Uh-huh. I mean, Codonopsis is, is so amazing. <laughs> it's a really cool yeah. herb. Yeah, one of my favorites. Sweet mm. and demulcent, gentle, nourishing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Love all those things. <laughs> Got a really cool flower too. It's like this little bell flower type of thing. <laughs> I've seen pictures when I was in, in, uh, in China, a lot of the adaptions come from what used to be Manchuria and like the, wow. the three northeasternly states. And it's, uh, there's a big mountain range up there called Chiang Baishan, Everwhite mountains. And I was up there almost exclusively, but a lot of the Codonopsis for instance, grows in Southern China. Um, so I did not, I've, I've yet to see that one in person. Mm. Yeah. So it's always different to like, yeah, to, to meet the plants. Not in, yet, in, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> you get the seeds. So yeah. it's just a matter of time. Yeah. yeah. I found they didn't have great germination, uh, but right. if you can get a couple to go to grow, then, then each of the like plant will have thousands of seeds. And mm-hmm. from those then. <laughs> <It's amazing. laughs> yeah. But you saw, you only get like a, like a hundred or. <laughs> or so but it's, it's, still, like, yeah. it's like ashwagandha right like that that yeah. mine mine seeded out last year and just tons and tons of seeds yeah yeah yeah, our, so ashwagandha, yeah, yeah our ashwagandha did great i was actually surprised i because i'm like well it usually is like i think of it as grown in india and like these hot climates but it did fine here and um it's just yeah, like a tomato. Your withanolide content is probably really sad though. Cause uh-huh. it in India, it's it's an incredible crop. It's drought, it's not it's not just drought resistant, it's drought loving. 
Oh, um, wow. So if you, uh, you can basically, I was in a 25 acre ashwagandha farm over a million oh, plants, cool. wow. just basically broadcasting seeds. And then you come back six months later and you hope it doesn't rain. Like it doesn't like fertilizer. Really? It doesn't like water. It has no real pest pressure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you, you just leave it and the less rain it gets from rainfall, the better, the higher cool. the phthalonide content. Well, we're, we, huh. we're getting a hoop house, uh, set up. Yeah, and so we're planning on there. putting it in there. So we'll have a long, longer season, but we can also Not regulate it. how much water it gets. Yeah. <laughs> so you're just, you're just saying, just don't, don't water. water it. Yeah. My, when okay. I harvested my, it's only a six month crop too. So it's, yeah. it's awesome for farmers, but yeah. I, I harvested one of my ashwagandha plants from my garden, which it was getting watered along with my squash and, you know, it's getting watered all the time. And it was this just tiny little, like almost nothing <laughs> uh, compared to, for the folks on video. Like this is an ashwagandha root uh-huh. um, from wow. India. And it's, wow. it's a yeah. world of difference. Yeah. Yeah. That was bigger than any of the ones we've, we've, uh, for sure. So far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. Very cool. Well, we're coming up on our hour. So, um, out of respect for your time, I think we should probably wrap up. So is there any other last thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, and of course, tell us, you know, where we can find more about you and your work and about Rasa. Yeah. Uh, well, if you're not offended by how I talked about coffee, I have a, <laughs> <laughs> I have a discount code, uh, cunning 15, um, cunning right. all caps and then one five, uh, okay. for 15% off and give Rasa a try if you want. Cool. And, uh, and you can find us at we or we are Rasa on all the, all the socials. Perfect. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thank thanks so much for having me on. This was really fun. I feel like we could probably talk for a couple more hours. Yeah. When <laughs> yeah. I looked at the clock, I was like, Oh snap, we still have so many questions, but we'll just have to maybe have you back on sometime. Love it. Cool. All right. Thanks Ben. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Bye.